Luke chapter 20, verse 41, to chapter 21, verse 4. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Well, let me add my welcome to Nick's. Uh, my name's Rod, if I haven't met you, and it's uh, great to be working through Luke's Gospel as we have been this term. We're up to this section that was just been read for us by Jody, and it's a famous one in terms of the quote uh, from Psalm 110, but there's a lot to unpack as we think through it. So let me pray for us, ask that God will really help us as we wrestle with the Bible, not that we'll just simply hear it and understand it, but that we'll really desire to put it into uh, practice in our lives. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here tonight, uh, wet as the weather has been, and we pray that you would uh, quieten our minds, help us to focus on your word and what you would have us here tonight through your word. Uh, we ask that your spirit would be at work in each one who is trusted in Jesus, applying your word to our hearts and minds, that we may really not only hear but respond. Uh, work in us, we pray, that we might uh, bring honour to you in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 1934, Adolf Hitler summoned all the German church leaders to his offices in Berlin to berate them uh, for not sufficiently supporting his programs. Pastor Martin Neumoller was one of the pastors gathered and he explained that he was concerned for the welfare of the church and of the German people. Hitler snapped back at him, you confine yourself to the church, I will take care of the German people. Well, Neumoller replied on behalf of the others, you say that you will take care of the German people, but we too as Christians and churchmen have a responsibility toward the German people. That responsibility was entrusted to us by God and neither you nor anyone in this world has the power to take it from us. Them's fighting words, hey? Apparently Hitler didn't act to kill Neumoller or the other church leaders at that moment because he was still fearful of the people. He was still um, establishing his Nazi regime, afraid of a backlash against his government at this early point. And so Hitler listened in silence but that evening, the Gestapo raided Neumoller's home, and a few days later, a bomb went off in his church. And during the following three years, Neumoller was uh, closely watched by secret police that were sent as spies to listen to his words, to see if there was anything that he would say against the government, to look for any evidence by which they might arrest him. Well, similarly, in our passage last Sunday, we saw 
that the Jewish religious authorities who had a stranglehold on the religious life of Israel had come to the point where they really wanted to remove Jesus, but they felt unable to do so at that point, even though they were already plotting to kill him. And that was because the people hung on his words as he taught each day in the temple, having entered as the king, the Messiah that was awaited. And so instead, of course, they sent spies, as we saw last week, to listen to him, to hope to catch him in something they might say in response to their questions and perhaps upset the Roman government and allow him to be arrested. Their approach was to set a trap. But as we saw, Jesus turned the tables on them and the traps failed and the spies ultimately were silenced. And so at this point in Luke's gospel, in this final week of Jesus' earthly life, uh, we see that Jesus has established his authority. He has silenced his critics at this point. He hasn't just claimed to be king as he rode into Jerusalem on the colt and then cleansed the temple. No, he's backed that up with his teaching and refuting his critics. And so in the section that we're considering tonight, we actually see, well, what does that mean? If Jesus has established that he has all authority, how will people respond to him? We see right and wrong responses to his kingship. And so the big question I want us to consider tonight is this. How should we respond to Jesus the King? How should we respond to Jesus the King? I've got three answers to that question tonight. First of them is this. By realising that he is the divine king who will judge. By realising he's the divine king who will judge people. So notice again what Luke records in verses 41 to 44. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So here the tables have turned completely. Jesus is now firing the questions at the teachers of the law, and it's a difficult question at that. There's been two rounds to this point where they've attacked him, uh, where the teachers of the law sent their spies to quiz him about paying taxes to Caesar. Then the Sadducees came about the resurrection. But no one had laid a glove on Jesus, so to speak, to this point. The opposition is defeated, and now it's round three, if you like, and Jesus is the one that's going to go on the attack this time and land the knockout punch. And notice that Jesus goes to the heart of the chapter, this questioning of his authority, and he throws this curly question to them about the authority of the Christ that they accepted was to come. The problem he posed arises from the habit of regarding people that follow as lesser than the former uh, people that they're descended from. So King David was held up as the ideal king of Israel. And so if someone was going to be the son of David and they were to come, well, surely they were lesser than David. But David, as Jesus points out in this quote from Psalm 110, actually refers to the Messiah or Christ who was to come as Lord. So Jesus' question is not to say he's, the Messiah is not the son of David. It's to ask them, how can the Christ be David's son, but also be greater than David? How does that work? Well, of course, they're baffled at that point, and Jesus goes on to explain it to them from Psalm 110. To understand this, we have to grasp the context of the original Psalm, Psalm 110, that uh, this quote is picked up from. 
It's a psalm of David. It's about the Christ who will come in part. And have a look on the screen at some of the verses that surround it so that we get the context here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Now, it seems somewhat bloodthirsty to us, but this psalm is really articulating what Israel's ideal king would be like. The language of sitting at the right hand is supposed to indicate the close relationship with God. And notice that the rule of this anointed one extends out from Zion or Jerusalem in verse 2. And it's going to actually encompass everyone, the whole earth. And the theme of judgment is also really clear in Psalm 110. You know, in the ancient world... Um, Vanquished enemies were often depicted as those who had to bow before their conqueror. And so sometimes they would actually place their foot on the person that came before them as a sign that they had been defeated. And it's something that we actually see in the Bible, even the Israelites practicing. So if you read Joshua in Joshua chapter 10, that point they're conquering the promised land, right? And they defeat five kings. And he has these kings brought and he gets his commanders of his army, Joshua, to put their feet on top of those who have been defeated by them. Jesus is clearing up a misunderstanding here of the Christ because people who use the title, as I said, son of David, usually thought about the Messiah strictly in military terms. He'll just be another David, perhaps not quite as good, but, you know, he'll throw off the political enemies of our nation and we will rule in our own stead again. That's a very narrow understanding of the Christ who is to come. The Christ was far greater than David, as we've seen. To call him Lord meaningfully is to understand this. And so we have to recognize from Psalm 110 what Jesus is saying as he says, I'm this Christ that would come, is that I am the divine judge of all people. We need to realize who we're dealing with. We can't dismiss him as another earthly king like David. No, this is the son of God who has come, the divine judge. To reject his rule has devastating consequences. Christianity is a call to faith in a person who claims to be God. He's the eternal son of God. And for the Jews to take all this in at this point, it was somewhat hard because these things would be clearly fulfilled in the days that would follow. Jesus would lay down his life. He would be raised from the dead on the third day. And then after a period, he would ascend to the Father's right hand, as Scripture often talks about in the New Testament. And so even on the day of Pentecost, following Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter gives his famous sermon in Jerusalem. All the crowds have flocked there for the Passover feast. And in Acts 2, verses 34 to 36, we get to the climax of Peter's speech. And these are the words that he picks on. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You see how he puts those two titles together. If you think Messiah is somehow lesser, he is both Lord and Messiah. And this was the stunning claim to the Jews as Peter called them to repentance on that day. 
We need to understand that Jesus is in a category all of his own. One writer put it this way, Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. You see, in Jesus, we're dealing with the Christ who is fully God and fully man. He is Lord over your life now and his judgment will determine your eternity. So don't miss this challenge because we'll one day all have to give an account before this one Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, plead with you tonight, if you're someone who's not sure where you stand with Jesus, let me encourage you to talk with somebody about that, to be open to accepting Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, realising the great lengths that God has gone, gone to in the sending of his Son, that he might pay for your debt before God and offer you life, not only life now, but life that goes on into eternity. And that brings me to a second answer. Second answer to our question of how should we respond to King Jesus? Well, secondly, if he has all authority like that, by living in the light of his word. Secondly, we need to live in the light of his word. We need to obey what he teaches. Notice what is stated in verses 45 to 47. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honour at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely." You see, Jesus has just landed the knockout punch as he explains Psalm 110, and he now offers to the crowd who are listening, and particularly his disciples that he's focusing on, knowing that everyone is still in the background, he offers this blistering assessment of the religious leaders of the nation. The people looked up to these people. You know, these are the spiritual guides, the teachers of the law, but Jesus is describing them as hypocrites that are going to hell. Having just established his authority as the divine judge, he's announcing a judgment here on those who reject his word, who are failing to obey God's word. Now, notice the religious leaders here. They are focused on their own honour. They're focused on the praise of people towards them. They love to parade their religion, Jesus says, but they actually have no compassion on the poor. They don't care for the widow or the defenceless. The very thing that God cares about most that he places leaders in charge that might care for and obey his word is the very thing they don't do. And so this is explained by Jesus. He offers five examples of how they fail, what they wear, how they desire to be addressed, where they sit, their accumulation of wealth, their showy religion. Notice firstly, there are the robes which were designed to draw attention to themselves. These were expensive outer garments and people would see them if they walked through the marketplace. You'd have to be wealthy to own it. It was a, a, state, a sign of status. But secondly, they wanted to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. 
This would be titles like rabbi. They wanted to be seen as superior to the people they were walking among so that people would be fawning over them. And then thirdly, they're, they're about getting the seat of honour, about having prominence wherever they are at any important event. So the most important seats at the synagogue were the ones up the front. You actually sat on the stage looking at the rest of the congregation just so nobody could miss that you were a step above all of them. And then at the banquets, they want the seat of honour. That is, you want to be closest to the head of the table, whoever's hosting the banquet, you want to be right next to them. And then fourthly, and perhaps the worst indictment, they're described as devouring widows' houses. It's not quite clear uh, from the original Greek what's happening here, but it seems to be that they're using their influence to abuse those who are most needy by imposing upon them hospitality, requiring them to be generous towards them when they're already wealthy because of the way they act. It's really despicable. And lastly, there's this showy religious religion, lengthy prayers in public that are meant to impress others. It's all about the big show so that everyone sees you, big talk. But Jesus says it's all empty. I grew up on five acres on the southwestern edge of Sydney in bushland, and one of the things you learn fairly quickly is a healthy respect for snakes. We had lots of them, and mainly red belly black snakes, but occasionally a black or a brown, and, and really rarely, thankfully, a tiger snake or a death adder. But we learned that you know, we needed to dispose of this so you didn't end up with it in your bedroom or your house, and so we came up with our great uh, method of just lunging with the spade and cutting the head off. That, that usually dealt with it. Uh, one afternoon, uh, I had a friend over from the next street who also lived on acreage, and um, we were confronted with a red-bellied black snake in the afternoon. And uh, after a few anxious moments, we eventually dealt with this snake. The head was cut off. But my friend then was all talk. He's like, ah, oh, you know, I've been watching Harry Butler and Albie Mangles. If you don't know them, they're like the early Steve Irwin. And, and you know, you don't do this wimpy cutting off the head with a, a, a shovel or a spade. You know, they get it and you just grab it by the tail and just crack it like a whip and it breaks their neck and they die instantly. That is the far tougher way to do it. So, all right. And um, so then he went on to demonstrate with this snake that we just killed. And so he gets it whips this thing, but of course with the head cut off, he just sprays himself completely with blood from the end of the snake. Um, uh, it's vivid to this day, very impressive. Um, big show, there had been lots of talk, but it wasn't quite the heroic moment that he was anticipating, I think. And we went away thinking, well, let's um, do what I say, not what I do. And this is the kind of position the religious leaders found themselves in. They talked big, they offered a big show, but they actually failed. They failed to live out what they told others to do. They were just going through the motions. And they had hearts that were just a long way from God. But the irony was they are the very ones that had been tasked with leading the people, and yet they were terrible examples. Now, of course, all these actions of the religious leaders just related to their own honour. They weren't thinking about honouring God, let alone helping those that were most in need. And is it any wonder then that Jesus says at the end of this section, these men will be punished most severely? I mean, Christ's pronouncement of judgment here is subtly ironic. Um, they're really in this little section, these people are seeking an abundance of status in the public arena. 
But instead, Jesus is saying they're going to get an abundance of divine condemnation. There's no true love of God. There's no true love for the people that they were meant to serve. Their roles are self-serving because these people are driven by pride. You know, there's a story that's told of two brothers uh, who grew up on a farm. Uh, one went away off to university, um, studied as a lawyer, became a, a prominent partner in a big law firm in the capital city of his state. His other brother stayed on the farm as a farmer, continuing to work it. One day, the lawyer came home um, chatting to his brother and said, look, you know, why don't you go out in the world and make a big name for yourself so you can hold your head up high like me, do something impressive with your life? And the brother pointed out to the wheat field nearby and said, you see that wheat field over there? Look closely. Only the empty heads stand up. Those that are well filled always bow low. You see, as we apply this section to ourselves, it, it highlights the need for believers, for Christians, to repent of any hypocrisy, uh, particularly any outward show of righteousness, because we know, if we've trusted in Jesus, that he's coming again to judge. So we cannot play games with these things and think that we'll only admit Christ's authority in some areas of our life and then we'll do as we please elsewhere and bar him perhaps from others. It's a really dangerous game, isn't it, as we see the religious leaders in this passage. It, it mocks the confession that somebody has that Jesus is Lord. And you, you can't paper over such things with the outward, you know, mere attendance at church on a Sunday or even at home group, as great as those things are, perhaps being able to mouth all the right words, they don't necessarily indicate what's going on in the heart of a person. Genuine followers of Jesus will be concerned about their inward spiritual health. They'll know that there's no protection through outward appearances. External show is no replacement for the reality of a true faith that actually issues in a life of humility and true responsiveness to our King. Well, maybe tonight you need to take stock. Maybe you've been living a double life like that, where you live to please God perhaps on, on Sunday, but you're not really giving him access the rest of the week. That was how I lived at the end of my high school years. I was more interested in the acceptance of my peers, so it was really them that I was trying to please Monday to Friday, not God. And it took me two or three years before God convicted me of my hypocrisy about all of that and led me to make a recommitment at an Easter camp. You know, if that's you tonight, you can do something about that. You can repent. You can turn back to God, ask for his forgiveness, ask for his help. God would love you to make a renewed commitment to seriously following him, if that's where you find yourself tonight. And that brings me to a third and a final answer. Third and final answer to our question, how should we respond to King Jesus? Well, finally, by making sure the king has our heart. By making sure that the king has our heart. Notice again what is recorded in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. 
He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. See, what we see in this final section is a contrasting response to God. If the teachers of the law represent how not to respond to Jesus and his word, here is something of what Jesus is looking for. Now, contributions for the running of the temple were placed in these sort of trumpet-shaped um, receptacles that they had in the court of the women, the second court in the temple complex, court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of the Israelite men, court of the priests. And there would be located a number of these, and people would come and put in uh, their gifts and offerings towards the maintenance and improvement of the temple. The temple was being redesigned even in Jesus' years by King Herod. What the woman was putting in with these two copper coins was worth one hundredth of a denarius coin. It was about five or ten minutes' work to earn that even in that day. This is a very small amount. But Jesus says that what she did was worth more. And it's because she gave out of her poverty while all the others were giving out of their wealth. You see, what Jesus is looking at as he looks at this scene at the temple is largely negative. He sees a corrupt temple system that he's already come in and sought to cleanse, as we saw a few weeks ago. He sees a lot of wealthy people making a show of giving not much, stuff that's not going to actually cost them because they have far more. But in the midst of that negativity, in spite of all of that, he sees in the widow an exceptional response to God. And that's because the measure of true sacrifice, true worship of God, is not what we give, but it's actually what we keep. His, her giving here was an indication of her heart for God. And so Jesus singles her out as a true worshipper. Now, as we apply this to ourselves today, I think what this whole passage points to is Christ's desire for people to respond to him wholeheartedly, given his clear authority to truly submit to his lordship. And I think the thing that stops us from doing that so often is that we have a low view of Jesus. We don't fully appreciate who he is and the authority that he has. And if that's the case, you won't be devoted to him. You'll be devoted to someone or something else. Your heart will be given to that. Even Christians can fall into this trap of marginalizing Christ's kingship. You know, we often summarize Christ's rule, his kingship, with three short words, Jesus is Lord. But those three words have massive implications. So I guess I want to finish by saying tonight, how are you going at living for Jesus? Do you happily identify yourself as a Christian? Aware that once you do so, people will be watching your life closely before they'll listen to anything that you've got to say. Are you standing out at work because of your example, your willingness to be different, your desire to go the extra mile? 
to help others? Are you a servant, a witness for your neighbours, even if they're tricky? Are you serving your family and your friends joyfully, sacrificially? Or is that something that comes very begrudgingly to you? Now, these examples, along with hundreds of others that you might name, are all little pictures of what's truly going on in our hearts. Every area of our life will either demonstrate or deny Christ's lordship. And he's the one that we're going to have to give an account to. We're going to have to give an account of our thoughts and our words and every action. And God expects nothing less than to be the number one priority in your life. He's not interested in sharing your affection for him with someone or something else. He won't tolerate rivals. He shouldn't. He wants your whole heart. It does raise the question, doesn't it? How can we submit to Christ's lordship with all our heart? We all struggle with this in one way or another. We're sinners who can't just try harder or put in a bit more effort or submit to him in our own strength. Otherwise, we'd be like this guy who on June 12th, 1979, a man named Brian Allen, he made aviation history. He flew a pedal-powered plane called the Gossamer Albatross across the English Channel. He took off from England. He flew from he flew for three hours nonstop, rarely more than five metres above the water. And finally, after covering 22 miles, he landed exhausted on the beach in France. But, you know, pedal-powered flight, it hasn't really taken off since then, has it? It's not widespread. It's not particularly practical. What's wrong with it? Well, a person can't maintain the necessary effort for anything more than a very short distance. It's the same if you try and grow as a believer in your own strength. If you try and do things in submission to Christ because you're going to put in a bit more effort this week. We can't do it. No one can serve Christ in their own power. But in Romans 8, verses 8 and 9, we read that truth and then something encouraging. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. See, we need to recognize tonight not only Christ's authority over our lives, but the help he offers to allow us to submit to him as Lord. We need the Spirit's help if we're going to live for Jesus, if we're truly going to love Jesus with all our heart and soul in surrendered obedience, let alone love others as ourselves as well. We need God's help and we need to continue to pray and ask for his help. We might continue to put off the old nature and submit to Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Three small words. Massive implications. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge tonight that uh, we can so often fail to submit our every thought and word and action to you. We so often fall short of your perfect standards. And yet we know that there is forgiveness in Christ. There is renewal and change as your spirit works in us. As we pray and ask for your help, Lord, help us to see 
that you've called us as Christ's people if we've placed our trust in him, to not only appreciate the wonderful forgiveness and salvation we have, but to truly live with him as our king. Lord, help us to grow in that this week as you enable us, as you strengthen us, that we might live for you. We pray it in Christ's name.